the incomparable. Number 559, March 2021. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. In this episode, we're going to do an old movie club. Old movie club. Reasonably old movie club. Old in a manner of speaking movie club. They're 40 years old. Hey, everybody. Four Gen Xers are here to talk to you about movies from the 80s. Isn't that great? (laughs) Was Uh, that before talkies were invented, Grandpa? We did this very good, I would say, and believe me, I don't think every episode of The Incomparable is very good. I would, I would, on the survey of like, where one means poor and five means excellent. Rate this episode so far. Not every (laughs) one would be a four. This episode so far, as my intros go, it's so rambly, it's a five. So we'll see. We only got to come down from there. Um, We did an episode where we talked about best picture winners and we we replaced them with other pictures from those years. And uh, a couple of things happened that made Phil really angry with me. One is that <laughs> I semi-seriously replaced Chariots of Fire with Raiders of the Lost Ark, mostly because I feel like Raiders of the Lost Ark, in addition to being a popular entertainment, is actually a brilliant film and Steven Spielberg's best work. But And then he got the message, right? Yeah. He was like, oh, I have to be taken seriously as an artist. And then, you know, Schindler's List, and he got an Oscar. But I, it wasn't a, a negative toward Chariots of Fire, but still Phil was like, hey, wait a second, you're a monster, because Chariots of Fire is great. <laughs> and then I made a joke about how I was going to replace Amadeus, the winner in 1984, with Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, at which point Phil, I believe, took out a contract on my life. I don't know yes. if that contract is still yes. active. Words were spoken. Were things that we can't take back were said, which yep. is good, because I won't take back any of it. <laughs> so this episode of Old Movie Club, Gen X watches movies from the 80s that they probably could have <laughs> even seen in the theater club. And I'm going to introduce my panelists here in a minute. It's going to happen, even though you've already heard them. What? We're going what? to revisit those two movies that I said mean things about, Chariots of Fire and Amadeus, both of which I watched this weekend. Joining me to talk about them, you heard him, my judge, he shall be my judge, it's Philip Michael. <laughs> yes, revenge is a dish best served in Old Movie Club. That's right. Cold movie. And it is very cold in Old Movie Club. Mm, because Kirk. they've got the AC on. It's just <laughs> chilly in here. It's <laughs> yeah, chilly. It's, chilly. it's film preservation. David J. Lohr also joins us. Hello. Hello. I, You know, I did see both of these in the theater at wow. the time, and one of them was really, really long, mm-hmm. and the other was Amadeus. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. And Monty Ashley also joins us. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> you flummoxed me. All right. I'm marking this intro down to a two out of five. <laughs> Reverse psychology. Oh, yeah. You, you totally got me. You got me there. Uh. Uh, let let us begin by talking about these are both best picture winners, by the way. Of course, that was the premise. So just to be clear, best picture eighty one and eighty four. Let's begin with Chariots of Fire. Everybody knows it from the Vangelis score. Everyone knows the first uh, minute of it. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, Phil. Honestly, the first two minutes of this movie is all I remember, and I saw this movie. But it is the indelible, they are running on the beach to the, I don't know, number one hit by Vangelis. It was a, it was a, they played it on the radio, this electronic music that in a movie that's set in the early 20th century. As as young men who are uh, on the Olympic team are running in their training, you know, at, at their training camp, essentially in the surf in England, in Kent. 
And uh, that is where this film begins. And that that it, from that alone, it, it is quite a memorable thing. Then then the continued, you know, the movie goes on for another two hours. But that moment is right up front. And at the end, by the way, clearly the the producers of this movie were like, this is gold. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. No, I know. Very- <laughs> And they, they, we were watching the movie, and the credits come on, and 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 my wife says, "Oh, we're we're doing this again." And I said, "Wouldn't you? Yeah. If you have that, <laughs> if you have that shot and that soundtrack, yeah, yeah, let's let's go back play to, it again. to the, the play it again, the gal that brung us. Absolutely. See if you can play it in even slower motion this time. Mm-hmm. And honestly, one of the things I really like about this movie is the bravery of using Vangelis. This was this made his made his name essentially. He is an electronic music artist, so they they use a, a a kind of eclectic electronic music artist in 1981 to do a historical film set in the 1920s. Really, a weird, weird choice, and it's great, and it works. It really works. The uh, music, it really does. The only the only thing I'll say about it, and and this is not to the detriment of this movie, but knowing film history. In 1982, the next year, Vangelis scored Blade Runner, yep. a mm-hmm. very different setting for a movie than Chariots and yet, of Fire. And yet the same music, huh? And yet, there yep. is a moment late in this movie <laughs> where there is a sort of elegiac piece playing in a, in a sort of melancholy scene, and I had to restrain myself to not shout, she won't live, but then again, <laughs> who does? Because... It's not no. that movie. It's a different. That's no. a different movie. Very different movie. No, I, I, I actually one of the things, um, the one of the 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 things that I I'm unable to solve with all the times I've watched Chariots of Fire is why the music does work because there's another um, '80s period piece movie called Hoosiers um, mm-hmm. that I do mm-hmm. not like at all, and one of the main reasons I don't like it is they have basically the electronic uh, uh, keyboard for uh, a movie set in the 1950s, and it is so jarring and out of place, and you go, yeah. "Well, what is this nonsense?" And then yet the same thing in essence happens with Chariots of Fire, and I'm all, "Yeah, of course, this is what a 1924 movie should sound like." Uh-huh. But see, that's that's one of the reasons I don't like Chariots of Fire, although I oh. love the music and I love that sequence. But then I am never again in the 1920s because my brain is always hmm. I'm, I'm just totally taken out. Interesting. Of it. So, yeah, I um I really like this movie. Honestly, I really liked it. Um, the my, <laughs> Lauren less impressed by it, uh, let's say. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that struck me about it is that it is a, uh, both of these films that we watched based on historical events, one of them hews closely to the history. The other just doesn't care. So (laughs) Chariots of Fire hews closely to the history. And one of the things I find fascinating about it is because it wants to, to match up with history as much as it can, you notice all the ways that a different adaptation that was based on historical events would have, they would have tied it better. Cause like you've got your two main characters. There's yes. Ben Cross. He's Harold Abrahams. He is a student at Cambridge. He's Jewish. He is, he's, he's a fa- Jewish. He's a fast runner. He faces <laughs> anti-Semitism uh, from, 
in some really John Gielgud is is like the headmaster of anti-Semitism at Cambridge, yes. I guess. I believe I believe he has the um, the anti-Semitism chair. Chair, yes, exactly right. It's been yes. there a very long time. Mm-hmm. And then there is uh, Ian Charleston, Charleston, who is uh, Eric Liddell, who is a uh, a Scottish runner. Uh, his parents are missionaries. He was born in China. He's come back to Scotland. He has a, gives a speech at one point about. Which I laughed at because it's very much like, I know nothing about Scotland, but I see your hills and your grass and I think, oh, isn't that nice? And I'm like, oh, he's working the crowd. Good job. Those two actors, those two characters, in another movie, right, they're going to be rivals. They're going to have a bunch of races against each other. There's going to be like a climactic moment where they either one defeats the other or they come to come to, you know, a, a conflict and it's resolved. And while they do run against one another in a single race in this movie. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, it's sort of like, they're just two guys on an Olympic team together. They run different races. They both have their story. They both win gold medals at the end. And they're different, and it's sort of a study in contrast, which I like. I actually yes. kind of like how it's aggressively not screenplay, <laughs> you know, uh, save the cat kind of point by point driven. And that it, yeah. instead it's just what really happened, which is these guys were both on an Olympic te- team together. They were both really driven and they were both totally different from very different backgrounds. It's, it's a really, really, really good masterpiece theater. And that's, mm. I mean, that's not a ding. It's, it's solid. I don't have a problem with it. I just, I, mm. I kind of do. I'll take a position. All right. If the slow motion running had been done in normal speed, this movie would be 30 minutes long and I would prefer it. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. Get them running. Get them. Get those guys. And and they run like idiots, by the way. Well, (laughs) they look like they're the upper class twit of the year contest a lot of the time. They they run like uh, they would run in the 1920s, yes. If, well, you, if you if you watch 1920s footage of of uh, newsreel things, you're all how how they don't know what they're how, doing. They don't know what they're doing. It's, uh, they're just like it's they a, had only just invented running about yes, five years earlier. Clearly, yeah, look at the way clearly. they did high jumps. It's ridiculous. He invented running forward. It used to be they would run in all sorts of directions, and then one guy said, "Hey, I'm gonna take the shortest distance to the the finish line," and everyone said, "Oh, you're you're smart." Maybe I am simple minded. But I would like a movie with a little more conflict between the two main characters. And also, everybody at Cambridge looks identical to me. Mm. Unless somebody uses a name, I'm like, is he talking to... Oh, that's Lindsay. Okay, that's Lindsay. That's Lindsay. Uh, I'm sorry. It's Aubrey? No, n- n- Nigel Havers. If you if you can't spot Nigel Havers out of a lineup with his cigarette holder. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. the sprinter who, who smokes throughout and is and uh-huh. always seems to have like a flight of champagne at the at the mm-hmm. ready. No, like for... It's part of my training old chap and he's very much... Uh, uh, the, the, this is Lord Lindsay because he's a very stiff upper lip and, uh, and very much uh, the life of the party. No, he, he stands out. The other two guys just might as well just switch faces. Yeah, they're just mannequins. I'll, I'll give you that. Yep. I'll give you that. But but you're Poor right. Aubrey. Nigel Havers is. In fact, I had a moment that that was literally the moment in the movie where I was like, oh, it's that guy, right? Because mm-hmm. that guy, I know that yeah. guy. Although right. uh, Ben Cross, people may know, been in lots He's of Sarek. lots of stuff. He was Sarek and JJ from Star Trek. Of course, Alex Krieg uh, was the Borg Queen. So it's a real Star Trek moment when they get together. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure that's what what Phil was thinking. Absolutely, I was thinking, wow, this that last my fan fiction has come true. Uh huh. Um, yep. 
So, Phil, tell me why you like Chariots of Fire, since I said okay. bad things about it and replaced it with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, I I kind of like the fact, Monty, that it doesn't have a lot of interpersonal conflict, that really it's, this is a man versus self story, or mm-hmm. man versus Men society. versus selves. Men, men versus <laughs> selves. Yeah. And um, I, I like, uh, I identify with the Eric... Uh, Liddell storyline, probably most of all, where it's a guy trying to balance this gift that he has with the calling that he has. And I just, to me, that is an interesting story. Uh, uh, Harold Abram, Abramson, Abrams trying to fit into a, uh, a, a world of snooty people, less interesting to me, but I think Ben Cross does a really good job of, uh, of uh, channeling that rage and that anger yep. and making you really yeah. feel uh, uh, the perspective of a person um, who's not of the world that he is inha- trying to inhabit. Right. Um, and so I, I like the fact that it's a little bit of a, a, a change of pace from your your traditional movies, and I like I also like the fact that the Americans are the villains. The, the, <laughs> the Americans show up, and they they might as well have twirling mustaches. Oh, they, that one American with the sunglasses with the, the sunglasses. That, and plus, <laughs> who does he think he is? It's Dave Stoller from Breaking Away is the most sinister oh, person yep. ever. Yep, and it's such a pretty movie. Yes. Scotland is very pretty, and most of the movie was filmed in Scotland. Uh, mm. The the bit where they're training on Kent, I think, is actually outside of St Andrews Golf Course, uh, where they they hold the uh, British Open every every so often. But it's it's just so beautifully filmed. As we've we've already talked up the soundtrack, uh, I, I I it just it it uh, entertains me. And also also I wouldn't have given it the best picture either. I thought Atlantic City was a better movie. But yes. uh, what can you do? So Ben Cross. I, I really like that character because it it's it's so much I mean this movie is so much about English classism. Oh yes. And and for Ben Cross it's fascinating cuz his backstory essentially he he's like we did everything you asked of us. And you know my my parents emigrated here and we did everything you asked of us and they sent their son to Cambridge. And I've excelled at everything. I'm good at everything. And I get here and it's not good enough for you because you're awful. <laughs> and yeah. there's anti-Semitism. And there's also a thing that as somebody who, who has watched the Olympics since I was a kid, there's also that whole Olympic amateurism thing which comes up, which is like, what? You hired a coach to make you run better? Why? That is not amateurism. He's like, I'm, I'm an, he's a professional. I'm an amateur, Ben Cross says, as Abrams. He's like, no, bah, no, says John Gielgud. Uh, well, that, <laughs> that, that is very much an English thing because oh, yeah. keep in mind, like, I, I forget when rugby players were finally allowed to, like, accept salaries in, in one of the, the forms of rugby played over there, but it was like in living memory. Yes. So uh, it, it's very, there's very much, uh, I'm not sure that translates as well to the to the U.S., that part of the movie where people are all, oh, eh, you, you have a coach? Ew, gross. And honestly, I wouldn't feel the classism quite as strongly if it weren't also mixed with the anti-Semitism, but you put them both together sure, and you really sure, see sure. that he's, he is, he is doing, he is the perfect Englishman and yet is still rejected 
because he's not of the right class and he's not of the right religion. And there's that moment where, where they're like, well, of course, you, we, we do this thing in the prayer service, but of course you can't do that. And it's like, oh, it's so much. <laughs> Although I really do enjoy uh, Sybil, his girlfriend, uh, who, who doesn't, it's like, whatever, I don't care, which is, yes. which is, is kind of sweet, like a little, a little uh, hope for the future that she doesn't care, even though the, the, the ensconced members of, of Cambridge uh, are going to put up all of these kind of barriers in the way. And he does, speaking of the coach, by the way, that's Ian Holm as his mm. coach. Uh, the the Italian, they're like, an Italian? That's offensive. He says, well, he's also part Arab. And they're like, what? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> he is neither. He's clearly Ian Holm. <laughs> it's Ian Holm. But still, that's a that's a great moment where, where he's like stacking on like, oh, you think you're going to be racist about that? Well, wait a second. <laughs> be more racist now, John Gielgud. Go ahead. Uh, which leads to that wonderful scene when he wins the gold medal, where he's been banned from the stadium, and he that is my that is my favorite it, scene oh, in the movie. And mm, uh, and he, yeah, he you know terrific. finds out that he that he has won or hears the cheers and all of that. He hears the cheers, so he knows the race is over. He sees the flag coming up, and it's the Union Jack, and they play the and anthem, he, and he plays the anthem, and then he he knows, and he's he's just. He's just so moved that he can't stand up anymore. He punches his rock, straw hat, the top of his, his straw, straw hat, hat right off. Rocks back and forth for a bit. No, it's that is that is tremendous yeah. acting. It's it's the, the, there didn't have to be any line of dialogue in that scene, and you absolutely get all the the emotion of that. Uh, Ian Holm really uh, uh, helps cement the movie. There's a lot of good elements, but he's the he's the the the, the nice little cherry on top. The Italian half Arab Italian cherry. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, to David's point about being a masterpiece theater, like. I appreciate that that Eric Liddell's story on its own, it would be very much like just his sister shaming him would be his story because yeah. that's kind of his story. But like Phil, as you said, um, it is it, it's really interesting because we have seen to this day we see these stories about people who are sports competitors who are intended to prioritize sports above everything else, who make a moral or religious or personal decision of any kind, and the authorities who just want the sports to go on. Right. Um, will yeah. will say no. You're a monster. You just have to do what we say. And this is this is an example of that. This is him in particular saying, "I'm not gonna I'm not gonna run in this heat on a Sunday, because I'm gonna honor the Sabbath." Um, which is which is funny since the other character is is Jewish and and could could do that, but but uh, Ben Cross's character does not care. <laughs> but no. but uh, but Eric <laughs> he Lindell keeps kosher, care. and I think that's it. No yarmulke. No, right. But he but that one thing. And just like I'm not gonna say that, that Eric Liddell is is Colin Kaepernick exactly, but he's like he tells the higher ups, including the Prince of Wales, like, forget it. I'm not gonna yeah. run. Like it's not gonna happen. Yeah. Don't there's nothing you can say that will make me do this. All the while his sister is like staring every scene she's got with him, she's like, Why do you hate God so much with this running? And he's like, Look, look. That I mean, beautifully, he says, you know, God made me fast. So yeah. this is, I, I am, I, like, I, I do I do really like that aspect of his story. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's that's a beautiful moment, too. Yeah. Yeah. Almost, not, it's no Ian Holm sitting on a, on a bed, but it's pretty good. Punching a hat. <laughs> <laughs> what did that hat ever do to you, Ian Holm? Oh. Liddell's story is my favorite part of this because it's not a story we get to see all the time. 
you know, fighting against classism, fighting against anti-Semitism. We've seen that. And this is a very good version of that story. And it happens to be true. But we've seen that. Yeah, it's it's more conventional. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's fine. But but this is I don't I can't remember another film that really tells that story. And and that's kind of interesting. Um and and I do like the fact that it doesn't follow your traditional oh they're going to butt heads, they're going to compete and one of them's going to win. They're going to fight over a girl. It would definitely be a more dramatic movie and if every movie would, was like this, I would be like movies what are you doing? But because <laughs> sure, sure. because yeah. literally yeah. every other movie is not like this, I was like, "Oh, I see what they're doing. They're just it's parallel stories. They're not they're really not about each other. Although the one place where the stories intersect, I really like because one of the things that's fascinating as a sports fan, one of the things that fascinates me is the idea that these players that are at the highest levels of whatever sport it is have always been the best in whatever group they were in at their sport. Always. Mm -hmm. And then they get to a certain level and they're not. And how do they handle that? Because you had that moment, right, where it's like, well, I know you're an NBA starter and an all-star, but LeBron James is better than you. It's like, how do you handle that? Like, you're not the best player. You're not. And that's what Ben Cross gets to deal with in the one place where these stories intersect, which is Liddell just runs the pants off of him, right? And he mm-hmm. is distraught by it. He's destroyed. And that's the thing that Ian Holm finally is like, I will, it is, this is an 80s movie. We will do a training montage. <laughs> and uh, I, I like that about it too. The training montage looked a lot like the Ministry of Silly Walks sketch. It, yes. It did. Yes. <sighs> it did. I like that. It's important <laughs> because we're seeing the origin of biomechanics. And this is, a little bit of sports psychology too. Like this is a very advanced training system for the time, but also the way he was walking with kind of a flamingo like strut reminded <laughs> me of a famous comedy sketch. I love a good montage. And that's okay. It's a sports training. It's good. Sports training montage. It's, it's good. That's like the one sports cliche. It really hits. Although it wasn't really one by then. And, and, you know, saying that the Americans are the villains, even that is stretching it right no it is it is because uh yeah. jackson schultz maybe because he was an advisor on the movie um <laughs> com- com- comes across as okay he's played by brad davis of midnight express fame and what what horrible things do the americans do essentially they show up and are considered favorites that's all and, 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 and they have coaches and they have coaches yes they have oh, the guy no. with the megaphone they they don't ah, care about the amateurism the they... i think they brought a racer of color but of course he does not get to appear in the big race no right <laughs> there are a couple racers of color yeah. in the uh in the various training scenes with the americans i did occasionally get distracted by thinking about how much faster usain bolt was than all of these people. yeah oh sure he could, yeah he, it would still He's, be it would be st- still striking six and he would be all around the quad <laughs> right like jesse owens who just raced 12 years after these guys was 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 faster than them by by quite a bit for sure well he so. wasn't running like a flamingo so yeah. right mm, well that's yeah. true it's true. He he had he had a few more years since the invention of, like, of running. He's two feet taller than them. A funny moment <laughs> was um, Lauren turned to me and said, "Are there any women in this movie?" Literally, like seconds before Alex Krieg appeared on screen. The answer is there mm-hmm. are two. Right? There's the there's the girlfriend and the sister. There's the there's Jenny the bummer <laughs> and there's uh there's the the Sybil the uh, the singer. Jenny, she's so disapproving. Like, oh God, she's a bummer. Yeah, 
every time, every time, every time, and she, she, <laughs> she is just every every minute she's on the screen, she's just, oh, this is terrible, and then she God shows up. God wants the you to be in China as a missionary, Eric. But I gotta run. <laughs> and uh, then she shows up at the Olympics at the end, and it's cool. Yeah, it's fine. Mm. It's fine. Oh, that's a sports uh, movie cliche. I'll count. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. Okay. okay. That, that too. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you showed up sure. for the big game and so forth. So fair enough. I like this movie. I do think that you know it, it was made in 1981 and it's two hours long, and you know it, it's it's slow paced. You know the Vangelis score can make it feel a little sleepy at times. But I mm-hmm. I liked it. I liked the I like that it's not like every other sports movie, and that these are interesting sort of like paths that these two characters take, and the fact that they don't end up having this collision. In fact, their only real race against each other is an important character building moment for one of the characters. If I if I were to uh, put forth the criticism of the movie, okay, it starts in 1978. Oh yeah! Then it goes to then it goes to nineteen twenty four, and then it goes. Oh, mom, I should have written you. Let me tell you about what happened in nineteen nineteen, and then ah. it, it, it's just it's just kooky with the time, and lines. it does not back out of those well at all. No, nope. it does not. Nope. That 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 annoys me about chariots of fire. So if anyone wants to complain about the flashbacks within flashbacks. Go right ahead. Here's my headcanon is the movie's trying to get all the way back to 1919, but it doesn't have the power. So it has to take, it has to <laughs> first do a first flashback and then it's like, okay, nope, this isn't far enough. Let's go further back. And then it comes forward again. Cause yeah, I, I that moment where, where I was, where both of us looked at each other and we're like, did they just do that? Did they just flash <laughs> inside a flashback? I'm like, yes, they did. They did. Now the movie is largely a letter written by somebody in a different flashback. Yes, written by Aubrey. <laughs> to be fair, the film was made a few years after the invention of the flashback within the flashback, so they were still perfecting it. The screenwriter who was assigned to do this movie based on this story went, so they were going to talk to Abrams, but he had just passed away, and the screenwriter went to his memorial service. And so the reason that Abrams' memorial service is in the movie is because the screenwriter went to it and thought it was such a an interesting way to tell that story of like, we're the last ones left, say the other random guys. Right. And then they bet, is it necessary? No, no, it kind of isn't. I think maybe the screenwriter got really swept away in Mm -hmm. the, in being there for the end of this story that he was trying to tell. And so wanted it in the movie, but is it really necessary? Other than I will say, other than something that maybe I don't appreciate because I'm not English and because it's not 1981. But I think one of the things this movie probably has going for it is the dreamy, you know, remember the old days, the halcyon days, these right after world war one. Um, and we're going to go back there now. And that, that framing sequence does that, which is like, forget about this crappy eighties. What about yeah. <laughs> 1919? Right. That was the time. It, it, it's from from a narrative standpoint, it it feels very clunky. It's it's not it's not that necessary because it's not like, no. you know, it's like oh, but now they're all dead. They, they're you get all, to see Nigel Nigel Havers in old man makeup. Yeah, which oh, they, people mm, of this era sure loved mm, showing off their old age makeup, didn't they? Mm-hmm. He said, looking forward to the next movie. Uh huh. <laughs> so anyway, Phil, I. Uh, I think we're all agreed that maybe this shouldn't have been the best picture, but uh, we can debate yeah, other yeah. other yeah, pictures there. But yeah. but I I did enjoy it, and and David, you're not far off. Like it it is 
I, no, it's good. I wouldn't it's say a it's a good it, movie. I wouldn't say it's in the King's speech box per se, but it is no, not at all. No, but it no, is not no, at no. all. It is a prestige it's, English oh. thing. I I think what I'm reacting to is the aura of prestige that it is giving me. Yeah. It's like this is important. It is overwhelming. You can see why a movie like this gets to be best picture and not Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Because that's just a silly movie with fun stuff in it, and this is a very serious movie. There's a great shot of, I think, Abrams watching Liddell the first time, and he slowly crumples his program in his fist as he gets more (laughs) excited. It's really good, and also very... This movie knows that it's very good. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it, right. it, yeah, yeah. It's mannered. It, it's it For knows sure. what yeah. it's doing. Yeah, it sure. slows down to let you get a better look at how good it is. It's an English film criticizing the class system, but it's also an English film from 1981. So it is very mannered and very English, even while it criticizes some things about England. Right? It is right. both of those things. Right. And and I mean, I'm I'm with Phil. I think Atlantic City was the better movie. Um, I would still give it to Raiders because I love Raiders. Mm. But, you know, third in a bunch of five where it's a really good three. And, and you know you know what would have won if this one hadn't? Probably Reds, actually. Yep. Oh, yep. That and that is and not. That, no, that, I, I call that one <laughs> the, lock, the Lockhorns Become Communist. Leroy <laughs> is, <laughs> is uh, going to lead the local uh, uh, Red Brigade. And, wow. Uh, Can't yeah. wait for Warren Batemus then. Um, yeah, no, no. Avoid, avoid heavily. <laughs> oh, we're watching the heck out of Dick Tracy. Can't wait. <laughs> Tolstoy wrote Warren Beatty. So, right? yes. Uh, okay. All right. So, yeah. I mean, this this is the thing is is that Chariots of Fire. We, we, when we did the Academy Awards episode, um, mm-hmm. we were the goal was really to kick bad movies that got the statue, and I would yeah. say this doesn't qualify as that. Even if there were better movies that year, like I I see. And honestly, the moment of them running on the beach with the Vangelis music playing, I'd probably say that's in the top 100 movie moments of all time, right? Like, Oh, absolutely. If you're a movie, if you get those two minutes and you're immortal for those two minutes, maybe that's enough. I had the theme song on 45. Oh, wow. And that bought me the single. Time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor. It's Fortnite. If you know anything about Fortnite, you know every season. There are some cool story and map changes over the past few seasons. Fortnite has seen everything from the island flooding to the legendary black hole. In this season, the zero point has been contained, but reality collapsed in the process. I hate when that happens. Restoring a natural balance to the island, craft weapons, hunt wildlife for food, and do everything it takes to survive. Picking up the battle pass lets you run wild with the lights of Lara Croft and Teen Titans Raven. Jump into Fortnite now. To experience it all, go to fn.gg slash season six. Once again, go to fn.gg slash season six to see it all. Thank you to Fortnite for supporting the incomparable. All right, let's move on to 1984, where Amadeus won Best Picture. This is a three-hour-long movie. Well, originally it was a little bit shorter. It was two yeah. hours and 40 mm. minutes because the studio said to Saul, to, uh, Saul Zance and Milos Foreman, we ain't putting out a three-hour movie with a bunch of opera in so it. So this, <laughs> this, this is the important part here is that, and there was actually we a debate about which, of the opera. which version is, is better, but essentially what happened is they had a three-hour movie. The studio said to cut it, so they cut it. 
But other than, I think, like early home video releases, the version that is now available is the three-hour cut that they made before they cut it by 40 minutes for the theater. The 40 minutes, and I'm I'm actually kind of not kidding, the 40 minutes mostly involves um, barking dogs. Yep. There's a lot of Mozart being dissolute. And, and a key scene with Salieri and Mozart's wife, actually, that yes. is much better in the movie than, than not. <laughs> yes. So... Amadeus is a movie about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but it's really a movie about Salieri, Antonio Salieri, who is the court composer of the of the Emperor Joseph II. And, you know, F. Murray Abraham won the Best Actor Award for this. Tom Hulse was nominated for Best Actor for Mozart, although as I, I, I annoyed Phil with uh, a couple of days ago as I was watching this, a couple <laughs> years later, and it would have been Matthew Broderick, people, because this is mm-hmm. wacky, zany, troublemaking Wolfgang Amadeus's day off. Also, the 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 prince, the emperor is literally the principal he's, from he's literally the Ferris principal. Bueller. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is it is has it, it, you know one best picture. It has is one of the best reviewed movies of all time. Um, I watched. I made an attempt to watch it once on home video and fell asleep and never watched it again until for this podcast. Oh wow! Um, and I'm here to say I really liked it. It is three yes. hours long, which is very, very. It's a, it's a actually it doesn't feel like a three hour long movie. It is long. No, it doesn't. That's right. Doesn't. But there's lots of interesting stuff that happens in it, and I'll tell you just up front here. The idea of a movie whose main character is a guy who is fine at his job and then comes into contact with a genius who will always be better than him, who is who is in his chosen profession and just without any effort can be better than than you on your best day. And that's what the movie is kind of about. What a what a wonderful bit of perception, right? Like you know, here mm-hmm. here is this man who who feels that again he has this gift from God, right? He made a promise to God that he would he would nurture this talent, and yet he recognizes that this other guy is really really good, and he is foul and horrible mm-hmm. and just obnoxious. And and his reaction, Salieri's reaction is to be like, well, screw you, God. I'm going to destroy him because you like him. Yeah. Speaking what? of framing sequences, <laughs> this this movie also has a framing sequence, which is old Salieri is committed after trying to kill himself. He's committed to a psychiatric hospital where a priest comes to him and says, so what's your problem? And he says, you want to know my problem? My problem <laughs> is God, because if Mozart <laughs> is the guy that God picks to have all of this talent, there is no God. And the priest is like, oh, God, oh, no. It is literally the record scratch. Yep, that's me, Salieri. <laughs> wondering how I, I got here? I no. bet you're wondering, yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, j- just to uh, step back for a little bit, in a way, and, and this struck me as I was watching these two movies this weekend, um, 
even though they were made not in consultation with each other, this is not the Mozart cinematic universe, uh, but uh, Amadeus is kind of the funhouse mirror version of Chariots of Fire. In that, you have two movies which are people uh, have a gift from God, or they're blessed with gifts that most ordinary people do not. How do they react to it? Do they do the Eric Little little thing where they're literally the best person to ever walk the the face of the earth do they do the mozart thing where they are a a brain jackass or do do they do the solieri thing where they're i am so angry at everyone and it's it's i i find it just i i find these are really two fun movies to watch back to back if you have 12 hours in your life and can, well, can and, move around your legs so that they don't yeah. fall off after the first uh, movie. And and it is also about uh, common people kind of working their way into upper class because of their talent. And and here I like the framing device because the framing device basically is the play. The play uh, uh, it doesn't have. I don't. I don't think it has the old man makeup. It's just Salieri talking to the audience and telling them the story. The audience is the priest in this case. And um, when I first read the play, I thought, wow, this movie is unfilm. This this thing is unfilmable. <laughs> there is no way you can do that. And they found a clever way to do that. And I I appreciate the the end where it wraps around back to the mm-hmm. Salieri uh, uh, confessing to the priest and then calling him out as a mediocrity. So I think that I, I really enjoy it. <laughs> All this character and plot stuff is real interesting. For me, this movie is about the best set decoration and costume design I've ever seen. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, so many wigs. Oh, so many wigs. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. Man, I love looking at this movie. Mm-hmm. Listening too, I guess all that Mozart's okay. There was that. There, there's that one party scene where you have the little kid riding the, um, riding the the roast beast. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> just just that scene alone. That must have been. How did they just sit down and conceive that and decide it and not have this movie go five gajillion dollars over budget? Imagine you're the costume designer. You're going through like yes, yes, yes. One of these party tests. Fancy dress ball, uh-huh. multiple <laughs> opera scenes, mm-hmm. burlesques of opera scenes. Get me Twilia Tharp on the phone. I need someone to choreograph. Cho- choreograph the yeah, dances. Twilia Tharp's company is 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 dancing, and it's yes, it is a a big budget movie that is really high production values, and and that is definitely you can never forget it because all of these scenes, all of these dramatic scenes are happening in uh in these beautiful locations. I guess they shot this in Prague, it's standing in for Vienna, but it's just it's just beautiful sets, beautiful costumes, and then the subject matter, like that moment where Salieri, who has snuck into the snack room to eat free food in advance, which makes me laugh. <laughs> um, Pro move. It is, it is. He's just like, oh this door isn't locked. I'm just gonna walk right in. Like I own the place. And then, uh, and then Mozart comes in with, you know, with his girlfriend and they're messing around and he's like that, that moment where they're like, oh, they're playing for you. And he's like, oh man, I gotta go. And, and Salieri's like, (laughs) oh no, oh no, Mozart's like really literally that is the moment of like, oh no, Mozart's in. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a question. Would Salieri have been okay with Mozart if Mozart had had better manners? 
Or is he just going to be jealous of someone that good no matter what? I think he would still have been jealous, but he wouldn't have had the righteous fury. Okay. Right. I think, yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I think Salieri's problem with Mozart is this is one of the things that's good about this movie is that it, it, it's it's su- it's subtle it's it's a bunch of different things right he feels like he's wasting his talent he's unworthy yeah right yeah. like that is yeah. definitely part of it he's wasting his talent he's unworthy um there is the jealousy aspect of it as well um and then the other aspect of it that i think i think is elevates this movie to a really high level is salieri as a mediocrity like he's so good at what he does that he knows that he's not that great. Right. Like he's, there's a level above, like he's the court composer, right? He is, he is a successful professional, but he like being a, like a music teacher or something like that. He, he knows enough to know he's not really that great. Like he's, he's a good critic, but he knows he's not that great. And then he sees Mozart and it's devastating because he, he knows how great Mozart is. And more than that, he knows better than, anyone else how great mozart is yeah he's he's the one who gets it like everyone else can say oh i really like his music and salieri can say here's why yeah i can explain these intervals and i can explain what yeah he's like i hate this guy i spent all my life studying music this guy's a genius right it's like all of that is inside salieri there it's so amazing right and and he does you know this this movie does he plots against him he he's an impediment to him in the director's cut which is the version you can watch he basically tells Mozart's wife if you want because they're desperate for money if you want this job you need to come back here and sleep with me that's the price and he's very clear about it and when she comes back he just basically says forget it and walks away and you know, see her out and like so he he has that whole level and yet he also has this incredible respect, and that's part of the tragedy, right? Is that Mozart doesn't doesn't get it. Mozart like doesn't understand what's I mean anything really other than music. <laughs> and at the end, in Mozart's last day alive, essentially, Salieri is with them there, and Mozart's like, "You're my friend. Thank you so much for helping me." And and Salieri is sitting there going. Yeah. I am. I am yeah. not your friend. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> it's yeah. Oh, let me let oh. me adjust my neckerchief uh, dramatically. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, but uh, to 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 that point, to the point where where uh, Salieri um, recognizes something that very few people do. Right. The 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 scene that really speaks to that is when uh, Mozart's wife brings him the compositions to look at. Oh my so god. That the, and and he's right. just flipping through them with this mixture of both rage and admiration and and, 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 and envy and having and, by the way having the, the skill to look at written music and know the music yeah the line mm-hmm. that gets me is I wouldn't presume mm-hmm. because there's that moment <laughs> when Mozart suggests you know oh you could teach me a thing or two about appealing to the crowd and his face just darkens mm. at the fury. At the idea that I would tell you how to write music. I know I'm not good enough to do that. Yeah. Well, the, the moment, actually, a brilliant, brilliant moment is, so Salieri composes a welcome piece for Mozart yeah. to come to court. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the emperor says, oh, I, I, you've given me some piano lessons. Let me play it. And I'm like, ah, 
<laughs> All right. And he plays it and you know, and 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 uh it's Jeffrey Jones and he's kinda like not quite doing it right and he's he's working on it and it's very much like a pupil and a and a teacher and Salieri's the teacher and he gets through it and, and and Mozart is trying to get in and there's that thing where they're like slowing him down and he's bopping around trying to see what's going on in there and they finally gets in, he skips in because he's this kind of hyperactive, very I would say very ADHD kind of kid that Mozart Mozart has been like there's a whole Mozart is is the focus of this movie but he's kind of not the focus of this movie and I have a lot of moments where I'm like wow like this what a character Mozart is to be a genius and to have this thing at a young age and then you're no longer a kid but you're still kind of kind of a kid um but that that moment when he says oh yeah I can just play it from memory and he sits down and he plays the song that he's heard from the other room, basically. Being played Being badly. Misplayed. Yeah, yeah. And then played badly. And he knows exactly what Salieri wrote. And then he fixes it. Mm-hmm. And it is, and this is how they, <laughs> they, they, like, they really meet officially. And it's devastating because it is, it is Mozart giving Salieri off the top of his head the notes that make his piece far better than it would ever have been. And it's just, I don't know, like as a creative person myself, I had that moment where it's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've experienced that right. Where you're like, Oh my God, this person is so talented. And it's just, I don't know. It's brilliant. It's brilliantly portrayed in that moment. It's, it's such a wonderful meditation on creativity too. both, you know, the person who really works at it and really learns everything and really tries. And is successful, right? And is successful. He is good. He's he is a He's music the court teacher. Composer for Pete's sake. Right? Mm-hmm. And and then at the same time to show what it's like to have that spark of genius. Where, you know, everyone everyone has a moment at some point where they go, I've got it and they just take off and do something. And some people do that repeatedly like Mozart and and it just it's such a beautiful illustration of of all of that range of creativity I I, and I I think an underrated aspect of this movie is that they've made the uh, emperor the musical emperor so comically inept when it comes to music Mm -hmm. (laughs) he he can't critique music he can't play it he's easily uh uh bamboozled into thinking he gives salieri uh uh, an award for a mediocre opera right but sir but sir you you banned dancing well can i show you the dancing sure show me the dancing oh the dancing is great let's do dancing i love that scene where he's like well, this just looks silly. Don't you guys think this looks silly? And he looks at it again. Well, look at it! I'm pretty sure this looks silly, guys. <laughs> no, I don't get this at all. There's a moment that I really love in this. I mean, there are a lot of moments I love in this movie. It's a really good movie, guys. Uh, it's a really good yeah. movie. <laughs> um, where where um, the emperor and his hangers-on are like no 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 you can't do that mode so you can't do the the that's that's degenerate arch you can't you can't do a uh, uh, about about uh, uh, Figaro or Dello, yeah. No, the, the you can't. Figaro. No, Figaro's been marriage to Figaro. It's been banned. You can't do it. And uh, and Mozart looks at Salieri and he's like, Salieri, what do you think? And he's like, back me up as a musician, but he's the court composer, right? And Salieri's like, well, whatever you say, Emperor, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and Mozart is so disappointed with him, and and. Salieri knows that 
it's stupid. But Salieri's in this in this position where he literally he cannot contradict the emperor. He can't do it. And at several points, you see it from both Salieri and Mozart, where they say things where the emperor is like, "Well, well, well I, I never." But he is easily bamboozled. There is that. <laughs> Just like look over there, and he's like, "What? All right, now we're dancing." Uh, oh, it's so good. I would like to talk about the last uh, bit of the movie. Okay. Which, as as a as a creative professional myself, the scene where they are writing uh, Mozart's uh, uh, Requiem Mass yes. is, uh, I think, probably one of the best uh, uh, ten minutes of film, fifteen minutes of film you're going to find, where they're, they're going bit by bit through this through this thing, and we're going to do the horns now, and we're going to do the this is what the tenors are going to sing, and this is, and it's great. It's just. It's the young person's guide to Mozart's Requiem. Yeah, well, and, and, it's, it's, and it's his creative process because the yeah. whole point of the, yeah. the, the movie yeah. really is sort of like he hears the whole thing in his head. Like that's so Salieri says yeah. that at some point. It's like he's taking dictation. There's no corrections on his written manuscripts. He just it's in his head. Yeah, we're impressed with Salieri because Salieri can keep up with it, and then Salieri can't keep up with it. Right. Now we know <laughs> yes. Mozart's even past that, oh. and that's kind of that moment where because his 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 plan was to sort of basically kill Mozart and take the Requiem for his own, right? Sort of. He said that specifically. Well, yeah, and, <laughs> rubbed his and, hands and cackled which, if I remember yes. correctly. Which is not at all what happened in real life, but that's no. okay because it's a great story. Yeah, and. Um, it, it's it's almost like that moment is where he's sort of realizing Mozart's even more talented than I thought, and there's no way I can pass this off as my own. And yeah, he is just he's overwhelmed with awe at that realization. The moment that where he where he breaks down, like Monty said, and it's like, wait, wait a second, wait a second, I don't yeah, understand. And Mozart's yeah. like, no, it's like this, it's like this. It's so good because you see Salieri's professionalism and the fact that he's very good right. at his job to take all of this down and then even then he gets lapped by Mozart's genius and <laughs> and and you can see that he's so frustrated because on one level he's frustrated because this is another reminder of Mozart's genius but it's also he is for this moment the conduit of the yeah. genius to the page he is the only thing that will keep will make this thing get out of Mozart's head and it's a huge responsibility for him and he feels in that moment he's not up to the task, and then he and then he catches up again. But it's it, it's it, I I agree. It is an amazing moment where you get to see everything there about his genius, about Salieri's frustration, about the pr- creative process involved in making music, which I've always found fascinating because I don't that like I don't understand that at all. How you envision a a symphony in your head, and so to have it be like this, it's just like wow, that guy that guy's a genius. And not and not only getting bested by by Mozart, getting bested by a feverish Mozart, right? Yes, who's, dying Mozart, and, basically. It yeah. is the what, color color of tuna fish throughout that scene. I also like the um, little bit of manners at the end of the scene where Mozart says, "We'll take a break now." You've you know you've been working very hard. We'll take a break now. And Salieri says, "No, I can keep going. Let's keep doing this." And Mozart's basically like. No, I I feel terrible. I'm probably going to die. I need to take a rest now. <laughs> right? Like, but it's I like that moment where he's like, "No, no. I am looking out for you." And Slayer's like, "Nope, don't look out for me. I'm doing great." And then and that that yes, he can't do it. 
And and this is also where the restored bit where Salieri uh, sexually humiliates Mrs. Mozart uh, come, comes into play because she shows up after being away at the spa and the look of hatred that she has at Salieri, it makes sense now with that scene in. The first time I saw the movie yes. and that, that scene is excessed, you go, what is your problem, lady? Right. <laughs> yeah, because it's a, it's a, yeah. it's it's kind of perplexing that they cut that scene because the idea yeah. there is that he's he he tells her to come have sex with him and then she shows mm-hmm. up and he he just dismisses her like I'm not going to even I, this point was just that I wanted to exert my power over you. Right, and exactly. It is it is the most villainous thing Salieri does in the whole movie actually and then it's not it's not in the 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 theatrical cut but the beauty of it is he says, you know, uh, you know, show yourself out or or I'll have my you know, and then he's like show her out. And then so the when servant, yeah. so when when she comes back and finds them and she tells him to show himself out and it's like mm-hmm. this this that's turnabout the, the that's callback. So, so beautiful yeah. and it's not in the theatrical release like what? But that's yeah. that's literally because they they wanted the the, the better rating. rating. Yeah. yeah, they didn't want an R and it, and part of the humiliation is that slow. It's like oh well now you're here. Oh, why don't you start taking off your clothes? And eventually she gets she gets to actual nudity and he goes okay go away. You can go. So Salieri as a villain. Right, like this is one of the things that I find fascinating about this movie too. Is he's our main character. He's the most interesting thing in the movie. He is a villain, but like only like I understand him. Hang on. <laughs> well, he's he's sympathetic because who hasn't been envious of someone else's talent, whether or not you have that talent. He starts out sympathetic, but by the end of the movie, the the priest and the audience are looking at him in horror yes. going, oh, that's the hell, and I, for once, laughing at him. <laughs> yeah, he's furious at God and wants to take it out on God. Right. <laughs> of course he's a villain. Who among us hasn't plotted to kill our rival and burn to crucifix? Who, I, I tell I you. Guess, I guess what I'm saying is I, I find his level of villainy fascinating because it's mostly the sin of jealousy and anger at God. Mm -hmm. And then there are some very specific sabotages he does to Mozart. And he does sabotage Mozart. And the thing he does to Mozart's wife is the worst thing he does. But he does a bunch of other bad stuff. But I think it's fascinating because, first off, it's a very human failing. It's a very understandable failing. And I don't know, I find it kind of delightful that the thing that offends him the most, the thing that he's angriest about, and the thing that makes him turn away from God is the idea that Mozart wasn't worthy and that he feels that he was, which I, I would point out shows that he wasn't, but it, he feels mm-hmm. that he was. I, I just, I find that delightful. Like, in the end, it's because God chose him and not me. And so, screw you, God. <laughs> like, that's, that's all here. Like, so, I don't know, maybe that adds just a little bit of a, a little uh, a little twist on it that makes, makes me, it's kind of delightful. And, and the, that last scene where he's just like, Yep, you, me, and all the other mediocrities in here, because the worst thing you could be... Again, he was successful. He was a successful yeah. professional who was destroyed because he was exposed to somebody who is a genius, and being a mediocre, successful professional wasn't good enough for him. Fascinating. 
And it's it's interesting because you you've seen movies and stories about someone who has a raging monstrous ego, and yeah, they might get their comeuppance, but they don't always realize it. Whereas here's someone who has a raging ego because he assumes that God should give him the talent, and the minute he's disabused of that notion comes really early and then the whole movie is him coming to terms with that the moment where which, he puts the crucifix on the fire is amazing right yeah it's like, yeah out yeah with you. yeah you're yeah that's really a no turning back kind of moment. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's sort of like i i've inadvertently worked on a lot of peter schaffer's plays over the years it's it's not like any kind of plan uh i've basically done all of them except equus i think and the rest of them are good and this is so far beyond it because it because it really captures something human that we don't always mm-hmm. see i love it i love it i love that that mozart is kind of a monster but also kind oh, of yes. an affable guy oh, yeah. like like i think mozart oh, yeah. so so talking about tom hulse and i think tom hulse gives as much as i say like a couple of years later it could have been matthew broderick like you could you could I can I could tell you the actors who could portray this character. Like I, if there's a kind of you want a smart ass, young smart ass <laughs> actor in this part, right? But like, it's so fascinating because he's a genius. He doesn't handle his talent very well, but he's kind of well meaning, but also a complete screw up. Like it's all wrapped in there together, and the whole idea there is he's not this wonderful person. He's a person with incredible talent who's super messed up, also has a controlling father, yeah. was yeah. was writing things at a young age, which we know now that is the child actor syndrome, right? Like he's a mm. messed up guy who has this incredible talent. And it's fascinating to watch him, the laugh, right? His maniacal oh, laugh. Oh, the laugh is amazing. I love it. And I love <laughs> that he's just like, he is trying to find pleasure, right? He's just trying to find pleasure. And the music... It, it, you know, he finds pleasure in music, I guess, but it's sort of like the music just happens to him. I don't know. It's a fascinating performance and a fascinating character, too. I, I don't know if you guys watch movies with the um, the subtitles on. I have to at this Always. point because I'm, I'm, I'm deaf as a post. But um, <laughs> th- whoever uh, was doing the subtitles, I hope they had brain laughter as a, as a macro on their keyboard <laughs> that they could just hit one the key. Because, F2 yes. for brain laughter, yep. Yes, because that's no. it. That one pops up a lot. I love that they let the laughter be annoying. Like, as a yeah. viewer, yes. frequently I'm like, what is all this scribbling and bibbling stuff? Mozart, shut up. You're an annoying jerk. Oh, my God, I'm on Salieri's side in this. Yep. <laughs> He's never malicious. He's always... He's lovable. Like, even when I hate the character, like, ah, oh, come on. He's just like that. <laughs> I knew a guy in high school who was our valedictorian, and he was like the California, like one of the California spelling bee finalists and stuff. He was a, he was, he was the golden boy, right? And, you know, he was, he was cooler than, <laughs> he was cooler than Mozart, I will say. But it reminded <laughs> me that a little bit too, which is like, I think sometimes if you're this brilliant, you also kind of have a way of, defusing people around you because otherwise you're just mm. going to be met with reverence. And I think that's part of what's going on with Mozart is that he's screwing around because otherwise everything is just going to be very serious and reverent all the time. And he wants to have fun in his and life. He wants everyone else to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes those moments tragic where he looks to Salieri as a colleague yeah. because he, I really believe, I honestly believe 
that even though he will, uh, you know, on a moment's notice, rewrite Salieri to be way better than anything Salieri would ever write, he legitimately thinks of him as a colleague. He doesn't really dwell on the fact that, like, everybody else is no good. He's like, no, this is one of my rare peers. And from Salieri's perspective, it's just, oh, oh, this guy, right? Like The one time he's somewhat cruel to Salieri, besides, well, there there are several times. Well, yeah. Uh, He goes to Salieri's opera and Salieri says, so what do you think? And he does the the ultimate backhanded compliment where he said, I never knew music could be like yes, that. Yes, that's true. <laughs> it's that, very that's, interesting. Yeah. When one hears something like that, what can one say but Salieri? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted him to keep doing that. Well, yeah, but I would also say that um, he's trying not to lie to him while also yeah. keeping... No, his, right. true. you know, trying to be, he's trying not to lie without trying to be mean about it, which he fails and then, at. And but, then at the opulent party, he makes the face as he's imitating Salieri. Yeah, because let me tell you, Phil, no. as somebody yeah. who has a, who, who, that's exactly how I would have responded to Salieri's opera. I'll just say it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I want to say something to him that is not rude, and I hated it. What am I going to say? And I'll be like, oh. There's so much going on. Like there's, oh yeah, it was like the action and the things were happening. And yes, I saw it, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you it was good, but I'm not going to be a jerk. Such colors, you'd say. But yes. It, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a symphony. I know the colors. Yeah. The emperor seemed pleased. Yes. You must be very I, happy. I right? went out humming the scenery. Right. There was this show we used to listen to. He did like three episodes in a row of nothing but Salieri's music. And it was fascinating because... It was fine. Yeah. Of course every, it was fine. every piece was fine. Yeah. And you could see why we know all of Mozart and we have no idea what Salieri says. Well, like. that's one of the great things in the, in the movie, right? Is when the priest comes in at the very beginning, he says, you know, oh, this one, do you know this one? This was very popular. He's like, no, I haven't heard it. And then he does, <laughs> he does a Mozart one and the, the priest doesn't know. And he's like, oh yeah, that's great. I know that. And he's like, yeah, that was Mozart. And, and it's such a great <laughs> moment. Like he's already forgotten. He's already forgotten. He yeah. knows, he knows that his music is going to be forgotten and that Mozart's music is immortal. And it, 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 it is the worst thing possible, but that's the way it is. Well, he, ha- he has that very haunting line at the end about listening to his his music remains and mine gets ever fainter. Uh, yeah. And it's it's yeah. that's uh, that gets me in the feels. Doesn't make up for the murdering and the uh, and the, <laughs> the sexually humiliating that woman. But yeah, okay. This is not the movie that shows you the cost that goes into being immortal, right? Like he is immortal right. and has a good time until he dies young. Whereas Salieri, it's not like Salieri was living, you know, living. Uh, well is the best revenge. Take that, Mozart. I'm having a really nice <laughs> life, uh, even though nobody will remember me because he's not. He's miserable. <laughs> it shows you the cost of seeing that genius and realizing you're not it yeah. and then seeing and knowing that it'll become immortal. And that's all you ever want. And a better person would just accept it, right? A better person would yeah. be like, yeah. I'm honored to be around and know Mozart. But Salieri, this is his fundamental character flaw, is that he can't stand it. He can't stand because he feels that he should be that person. And that's why he burns the crucifix and he's so angry at God is because he, that, you know, like I said, this is his problem is not that he doesn't have that talent. It's that he feels he's owed that talent. Falco is not recording a rap song called Salieri. No. No. I wrote down a joke about Mozart's problems. Okay. It is this. 
being okay. down to only one gold snuff box is a very specific level of poverty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel that bad for this guy. No. Have you seen his pl- where he lives? It's amazing. Sorry, you yes. don't have a maid. Em- Emperor's court problems. Yeah, although he does, he has a he has a, a charity maid, charity maid, a, a secret plotting, Salieri funded charity maid, but still a maid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't even <laughs> mentioned one of the greatest scenes ever put on to paper by a screenwriter or a or a playwright about editorial interference. Uh huh. Which is uh-huh. the we have we have. We have one comment on your genius thing that will be remembered throughout human history, Mozart. Too Too many many notes. notes. You say one stupid thing and people crack lies about you for centuries. Notes. (laughs) Take a few out and it'll be perfect. There's also the line about how his majesty can barely concentrate on anything for an hour and you gave him four. And I could kind of feel Milo's foreman turn and glare Uh at me. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's three hours long. Shut up and watch it. I cut 40 minutes out. Now you're not going to get the ending. Too many notes. (laughs) Uh, Hey, Sol Zayans, too many notes. Well, bottom line, this is a very long movie, but I was entertained throughout. I, I mean, I paused it at an hour and a half. And got a beverage and went to the bathroom and, you know, I stretched a little bit. I made my own intermission because it's a very long movie, but it's very entertaining. And there's a lot of really like it. it's a fascinating, entertaining movie. So, I mean, just be warned. It's 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 three hours long, but it's good. This movie's so much fun. It makes operas look like a good time. I know. Yeah. Right. By, by the way, if you're if you're looking for a starter opera, you, you could do worse than Magic Flute. It's a good totally. One. Yeah. Totally. I'd like to see that uh, vaudeville opera that was making fun of Don Giovanni. That oh, looked like yeah. a good time. We saw <laughs> a lot of that. So, Phil, uh, I'm not going to replace Amadeus with uh, Break Into Electric Boogaloo. So, uh, well, I, I thank you for I thank you for that. Uh, we all thank you. Yeah. I, I think our job here is done. I guess mm-hmm. so. Yes, and uh, these were both fun. So I, I invested a lot of time in watching them, as did you. But uh, it was worth it. They were they were enjoyable. I enjoyed both of them. Movies from the early 1980s in this edition of Old Movie Club. Let me thank my panelists for being here. David J. Lore, thank you. Thank you. This was a delight. Monty Ashley, thank you. Oh, it's okay. I found another three or four gold snuff boxes over here. <laughs> <laughs> and Philip Michaels, uh, too many notes. Brain laughter, Jason. Always brain laughter. <laughs> Always. Remember the brain laughter. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. Just picture us running in slow motion in the surf over Vangelis as we fade into the distance and we'll see you next time. <laughs>